0: Here we go. And uh, especially uh, an anticipation of his presence. And to be sure, when we come into the place of God like this, we're going to learn even today that we are coming in to the presence of a great mystery. A mystery that is revealed. I mean, today, think about it for a moment. Is there any greater mystery than the mystery God? What is God? Is God a person or is God a force? Is God opinionated, or is he nonchalant? Is God present, as in with us, in the midst of us, or is he absent, just looking down at best upon us? Is God just, or compassionate, or both, or either or? And perhaps most important of all, can the mystery of God be discovered by a thorough investigation on our part? Can we just simply look at the evidential clues around us in the world? Is it a revelation that is of this world that we can be a kind of Father Brown and enter into the mystery of God? Or is this a mystery? that comes to us from another world, from another reality? How would we know this mystery? What do we mean even by the word mystery? Well, these are questions that we might take for granted now 2,000 years after Christianity was birthed and the person and work of Christ, but, but these were questions that were very relevant in the first century. And I find them to be very relevant to us today. That is to say, in Paul's day, there was a growing trend towards what we would describe now as a mystery religion, a form of ancient Gnosticism, wherein God remains a mystery at least in any certain factual sense, a kind of spirituality that was highly subjective and known through personal experiences and intuitions. Does that sound familiar? That is a kind of mystery wherein God is a mystery even without any objectively known realities. Today, it's true, we discern a very common trend emerging. Wherein spirituality is but is anything but organized religion, aka a religion with definitive objective based beliefs and practices. Concerning God and who he is, what he is like, but most especially then, how might we believe and act upon those beliefs. Therefore, as by this ancient and confessional hymn, we discern the key to these questions. Where in the mystery of God, that kind of mystery that is unto true godliness, not this false godliness of this mystery religion type. But that true godliness will emerge. We'll discover that it's a mystery that is at once historically or objectively revealed. But must be subjectively, even again by supernatural powers that work within us, discerned. We will discover a a heaven to earth reality yet again. That this is a mystery that is not like a Father ground mystery. It is not simply that we can go and look for the evidentialist clues that are laying around the ground somewhere and we can puzzle them together. It is a mystery that must be revealed, not merely investigated, but again, a mystery that is objective truth, historically revealed from heaven. To earth, and subjectively discerned again from heaven into our heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. That pretty much sets up what we're going to be doing today. But for sure, if it's such a mystery, we need to pray. Because if you've heard nothing at all so far, we've discerned already that the kind of mystery that Paul's going to talk about here in our passage is a mystery that must be given by God to us from heaven to earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for that right now. And so, Father, we pray that your mystery, the mystery G-O-D, that that mystery you would choose by your own good will and pleasure to reveal to us as by the scripture that you've given us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we pray with the ancient church the same pray that we pray every day. Come, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name, in Christ's name, that we pray. Amen. Well, notice especially, um, I'm going to divide this up in terms of three parts in verses 14 through 16. You're going to have verses 14 there. And it's going to be regarding uh, what I'm going to call the the Mysteries Academy, the Academy of the Mystery. Uh, Very, very importantly, it begins there. Where and to whom is this mystery to be revealed? From there, we will then talk about what the meaning of, what is the mystery that is unto godliness? What is Paul talking about? That mystery unto godliness. And then thirdly, we'll look at how and the mystery has been revealed in Jesus Christ. In the form of this great ancient hymn. But first of all, just look briefly. And again, I should, I should warn you, you know, in a confessional hymn like this, uh, what you have is packed in these two stanzas, as you'll see. You have packed into it what you could describe as a whole systematic theology. Uh, if you were familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, you pretty much have chapter 1 through 33 all packed into two stanzas. That's the beauty of a hymn, right? Right? You have one line, and in that line is packed a whole corpus of of doctrine and beliefs. And so it's an amazing hymn, this confession, that summarizes the totality of our faith. And yet, we see in verse 14 particularly who this revelation is to come to. It, It builds up a kind of expectation, if you will. Where can I find the mystery? Where would we go if we were to search for this mystery? And the answer is very clear. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. In other words, in the context of their own problems, their own false prophets and, and these, this false religion that was coming out of it. He says, I'm writing to you. And then look what he does. How he describes the people he's writing this to. He says, the household of God. Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and bulwark of the truth. Now, put that in the context of First Timothy. Very clearly, he's trying to isolate out of this myriad of religious movements that's, that's rampant around Paul's day. Many of which were coming in the forms, uh, different forms of quote-unquote Christianity, even if they were no Christianity at all in essence. And so he's trying to, to narrow down, you know, where can you find the answers to this true religion? And he focuses you on the household of God, described as the church of the living God, described as then a pillar and bulwark of the, that is one singular corpus of truth, the truth. There is no other truth. Very briefly, the household of God. This is interesting because... Notice what the church is not. This place where God's going to reveal his mystery is not a mere event, as some today have sadly confused the church to be. It is a house, it is a family, it's a social construct with God as the Father. That is, whatever else you may think of church, it is not about getting an emotional fix in an event on Sunday or Friday or Saturday or whatever. It is not a rock concert with an inspirational message. It's not a spiritual retreat on a weekend. It's not a political movement. It's not an ethical system. It's not a schoolhouse in the pure sense of that word. It's a family. It's a family. It's amazing, this family language. It's all through the Old and New Testament. Even the temple of God is described as what the house Of God, God's house, His dwelling place. It's a family room, it's a den, if you will. We cannot underestimate this. As such, and as it is within this context of being the family of God, that we now have the place where Christ or God lives. It's the church that is of a living God, not a system, again, not an ethic. Not a politic. That's not true religion. Even if it, true religion may have impact in any of those things, but at its core, at the very core of this true religion, this mystery, it's the kind that's going to be revealed within this system of relationships we call a family. Thomas Oden won't spoke about this coming out of modernity and the way we had kind of bastardized, if you will, true Christianity. He says it this way, where did we get the twisted notion that orthodoxy is essentially just a set of ideas rather than a living tradition of social experiences? Our stereotype of orthodoxy is that of frozen dogma, and it doesn't involve, of course, beliefs, and he wouldn't deny that. But where do those beliefs come from? How do we learn those beliefs? Well, he goes on to discover it. Rather than a warm continuity of human experience, of grandmothers teaching granddaughters, of feasts and of stories, of rites and of dancing, orthodoxies are never best judged only by their doctrines, but more by their social products that qualify as their communities. They await being studied sociologically, if not also theologically. I love that. Maybe you're surprised to hear me say I love that. But I love that because I love doctrine. I love theology. I love ideas. And to be sure, there are ideas. But how would those ideas come to us? They come to us in the context of the family of God. We know about this family of God in Matthew 16 that that this isn't just any old family that's constructed with with some creativity on our part, but that it's divinely instituted. I will build my church, says Christ, to Peter after Peter confessed Christ to be the Messiah. We know that that power is not of this world, the power that, that is in the church. It's a power not of this world. It's a binding and loosing on earth, that which is bound and loose in heaven. Put it simply... If someone were to ask you, why should we go to church? I know that's questions never asked. Everybody assumes that you should go to church. I know that. But just in case you might not know why you would say what you would say, just in case somebody out there is telling you that, oh, I don't need church. I don't like church. I'm spiritual. That's enough. Well, what would you say now? You'd say, well, without the church, it's like, You don't have God living. You don't have God as your father. You don't have a family. You don't have the very context, which is described here as the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is where it's preserved. This is where it's revealed. Without the church, in short, you will not. Discern the mystery of God. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying here. And so therein in the context, wherein is it to be found within the life, this social movement of the church of Jesus Christ. That brings us into this idea of mystery itself. You could say it's the mystery of all mysteries. Great indeed, he says. That is the greatest of all All things, in effect, of what this sentence says, great indeed, greater than all other mysteries is this quote: "The mystery that is unto godliness." But notice what comes in between that. Great indeed, we confess. Herein we come to the introduction of this amazing hymn, a hymn that clearly was meant to be confessed. In fact, we confess it in this church. And we're going to do that today as we come to the Lord's Supper. But this is one of the confessions that we use. It's perhaps the first of of any known confession in the church. It's right here, what we're about to read. And yet, likened into its day, by virtue, if you were to read it in the Greek, there's a rhyme to it, there's a rhythm to it or a meter. It's clearly a hymn. That which was put forth in a way that was readily uh, memorized in singing as was common in that day. We confess. That is more than we can speculate, more than we're just kind of guessing. But no, we confess, which pertains to the foundational belief of our life. This This is foundation. Of all the things that we base our life on, we base it on this. That's what this word confess means. When we confess our faith, In the church. It's saying this is what the core principle of my life is. If someone were to say, what's your kind of core value? What's your what is it that you, Christian, believe that interprets and explains everything about your life? I would say, here it is. Here it is. I confess the mystery that is unto godliness. Boop, 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 boop. Notice unto godliness. This mystery, according to godliness, that is a mystery as related to the beliefs and practices of knowing God. You know, godliness sometimes, if you've been around the Christian block, can can sound kind of moralistic. That's really not the word. Yeah, to be godly is to be a morally uh, holy person, perhaps. But it's really much deeper than that. To be godly is to know God and to act like it. It's those things pertaining to God, which is godliness. That which is pertaining to God. It's this mystery, God. And so what is the mystery of all mysteries, that mystery according to godliness? Well, again, I want to make it clear. This is not a mystery that we can investigate as it's not a mystery that's, that's within this world. This is not a Father Brown mystery or a crime mystery. This is not about Stonehenge and Bermuda Triangle and phenomenal mysteries, things which we could study natural history about or we could try to look at little clues that have been left in a sequence of events in history. Rather, this is a kind of mystery of all mysteries. You know, it's not a puzzle that we can, can put together within our own limitations and the limited clues that we have within time and space. Why? Why? Well, see, a a crime in a Father Brown mystery is something that happened in time and space. God, God is not so bound to that which he created, which is our time and space. There's something about God that is different from every other category of what we can know that there is to know. God stands out as different from every other kind of knowledge. You can never forget that. If God's God. If he's not God, then, and if he can be known through the kind of knowledge that I can know, uh, uh, solve a criminal case, then I'm not bound to that God, are you? That's not God. And so when we talk about God, we immediately get into the idea of revelation-based mystery. A mystery that has to be known by a revelation a revelation is defined as that which comes from another world to our world. It's something that's supernatural, not natural. This trans-temporal, not temporal, even if, though, for it to be revealed, it must come into our natural and temporal space in time. Now, this is getting heady, so I'm going to stop right there. Just enough for you to know that, that what we're not talking about is the Father Brown mystery story. But rather, we're talking about the mystery of all mysteries. And in this sense, we understand that here we have a revelatory mystery that, most, that must come to us both outwardly, manifest in history, it must come to us somehow from heaven to earth, so it's got to get to earth. So there's going to be an outward aspect of the revelation of God, but it also must be inward as to be received by a willing and participating heart. Both of those events, revelation as it is outwardly manifest, and you notice that word manifest, outwardly manifest and inwardly received is a work of a heaven to earth event. It's a supernatural event in Scripture. We must be born again inwardly that we might have a transformed disposition of will that would want and would be able to see and hear what God reveals. But there also must be a fact-based revelation, that is a revelation that, that makes itself known in a historical context of a supernatural act of God. Now Don't ever forget that Christianity then, contrary to Gnosticism, contrary to modern spirituality, is a, is a heaven-to-earth, not just heaven, not just earth, but a heaven-to-earth phenomenon. That it comes from heaven into our time and space, historically objective. And so that then gets us to this third part. That is to say, wherein then do we discover the mystery of God? Revealed, both outwardly in historical manifestation and inwardly in our heart. And that's exactly what happens in this hymn. I wasn't just doing this stuff to be philosophical. If you look at this hymn in two stanzas, there's this outward, manifest, historically kind of, of proclamation, and then the effect upon that, upon our lives, as it is proclaimed among the nations, received and believed on in the world all within the context of Christ's ascended ministry on earth as it is in heaven. It's an amazing, profound hymn. I mean, when I look at this hymn, it just, no human mind could dream this up. It is that profound. But here's the key. It all hinges on this idea of, of course, Jesus Christ. You remember in Matthew 16, I mentioned that in a minute, when the church is introduced in this this idea, it was after Peter confessed Christ's to be Messiah. That Jesus says that, that this had to be revealed by God to you. And it's when this is context that he starts talking about this church. The context that's going to be built in order for that confession to be birthed over and over and over again. This heaven to earth moment. We see it for instance in, in, uh, as well in Colossians and in other spots where Paul will say for instance. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in art. And united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. There it is. You can get the mystery revealed. In order that they may know the mystery of God. How in are we going to know the mystery of God within the context of this living family of God church? Here it is. Namely, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is a phenomenal passage that perfectly illustrates what Paul now is doing in this hymn. So too, in Romans 16, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation, not the investigation. Paul didn't say, oh, I investigated all the clues of the world and I came to the conclusion Jesus Christ is God. No. He says, according to the revelation. He says, this preaching of Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from long ago. And this is what we have here. Here in the confession concerning the mystery of God. Listen to it again. And if it were said in the Greek, you would hear the the, the rhyme, and it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful and sacred. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, witnessed by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Again, to break this down, there's two stanzas generally, three lines each. The first stanza sings to the objective historical revelation of God in Christ, incarnation, resurrection, and ascension, as witnessed to by the angels. Both pertaining to the historical, that is within time and space, revelation of God in Christ, such as to reveal God both in His humiliation and His exaltation. It's all packed in. You see that in the second stanza, sings of God's ascension ministry that is ongoing through His church. Remember what we just engaged earlier. Concluding again with the theme of the church's ultimate glorification. Look at it more carefully, very, very briefly. First of all, we have this amazing statement. This idea that, that Christ was manifest in the flesh. Of course, he's talking about the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation which is described as an act of humility on the part of God in Christ. We see that in Philippians 2, for instance, have this mind among yourselves. And he goes on to say, but that was that God, it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the mere, you could almost put in there mere likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Everything about that line manifested in the flesh. Is the act of God taking upon himself in an act of humble condescension, bringing himself into the plight, into the sin, under the law, in the humiliation of humanity in their sin. It's an incredible statement, which would be unpacked in sermons throughout the year in the church of Ephesus. I mean, easily, that line is a five-part sermon. Easily. You get the gist. The humility of God. Have you ever thought of God as humble? The humility of God. That would manifest himself in our temporal space and time. But more than that, under the curse of the law. Such that in solidarity to our sin, he might endure our curse. And satisfy it perfectly and fully exhausting the justice of God to its very end the word we use is propitiation to exhaust this is your God Church of Jesus Christ God so humble that God eternal immortal invisible God, only wise, would manifest himself to you and me as a humble servant in the Son, the co-equality Trinitarian Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's how this great hymn begins. Then it says, vindicated by the Spirit. Now, that word vindication, it's the word is also used that we talk about the word justification. Same word there. Vindicated, justified. In, by the Spirit, clearly. He's speaking here of the resurrection. Paul will make it very clear in this passage in Romans how it is that the Spirit vindicated Christ by raising him from the dead. Romans 1 4, in that, what was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. God the Son did not remain in the grave, God the Son has got to be justified before history. Justified as being just and the justifier. As being righteous. Himself no cause for curse. And yet being cursed on behalf of the cursed. If he had laid in that grave, he would just be another martyr. And all, as much as we may be inspired by a martyr to faith, as much as we might, he might be a, a, a martyr as a moral exemplar to our faith, there would be no atonement of sin. It's not for the resurrection. And so here we have it. Manifest in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit proved that Jesus was who he claimed to be throughout the earthly ministry. The Spirit proved it Jesus' baptism when he descended upon him from the heavens like a dove. He proved it by preserving Jesus Christ from sin throughout the earthly ministry. He proved it whenever he performed miracles, especially when he drove out demons. But most especially, he proved it. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God in flesh dwelling. He proved it when he raised him from the dead. And remember, this is a historical fact. And I say fact because you can, you can do a historical analysis and say something big deal happened in the first century. In this little band of Jews. So much so that the whole world got turned upside down within a hundred years. The whole world got turned upside down. Cowards became martyrs. Agnostics became Believers. Powerful things happened, which will be part of his second stanza. Insofar so far as it's real time and space reality, it's objective. And then seen by the angels. We know, of course, that the gospels, that some of the angels were witnesses of the incarnation of Christ. We know that angels sang at his birth in Luke chapter 2. They attended to him in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1. An angel even appeared to him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. But the angels were also witnesses of the risen Christ. They were the first to tell the disciples that Jesus was alive, Matthew 28 and Luke 24. But how could they give such testimony unless they had seen the resurrected body? That is attested to, witnessed by the angels. Again, time prevents me, but to, throughout redemptive history, to invoke the heavenly host, that is the angels, was to invoke the highest manifestation of witness. Here in this context, it seems like the focus here, though, is on the angels who witnessed and declared the ascension of Christ. The climactic declaration wherein we see in Acts how it was that, that there was an angel that appeared to the apostles who witnessed to the meaning and the importance of the ascension. In Chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. That is where he was lifted up and it's the same word used here later in the last verse. We see it for instance in Revelations. The very book of Revelation itself is revealed by an angel, if you remember, to John. And throughout that book, if you've read it, everywhere, it's to the angels, from the angels. The angels are all over that revelation. I suspect that's what really Paul is emphasizing here. As he makes the segue into the ascension ministry of Christ within and through the church of Jesus Christ on earth. That he's now ending with this idea of the full historical salvation events of Christ. Birth, resurrection, ascension. as all testified to by the angels as he now turns to the ascension ministry of Christ in stanza two. And stanza two is profound. Following this second part of Christ's statement and, and this idea of, of, of the... Uh, of of the historical objectivity, if you will, as witnessed to by the angels. Paul now looks to the work of the church, proclaiming among the nations, speaking about the universality of Christ. He's not a sect God or, or, or Lord, not sectarian, if you will. Preached among the nations, we're told, and what would you expect? Believed on by the world. Clearly, the church now has its marching orders. How is this era between his ascension and his return to be described as our purpose? It goes back to the campaign of all campaigns. At the core of our existence, this gets unto Godliness. Everything we do at the core is about Jesus Christ proclaiming him among the nations, witnessing him among the nations. I mean, really ask yourself, Christian. Does your belief about the mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ give to you such a commission in your heart? Is that the first of all commissions? This is the point. This is the unto godliness part. What does it mean to be a mystery revealed unto godliness? It's to form these core of beliefs that are rooted in the mystery of of who God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Both humble and exalted. The servant the suffering servant, the truth, the life, everything. And if so, really, if that's so, then it changes my life and my mission in life. And to be sure, it's the mission of the church to go, therefore, into the world making disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them, teaching them all things whatsoever, remembering That I am still with you in the power of the Holy Spirit, binding and loosing on earth what is bound in heaven. All of that teaching that, again, would be five more sermons is wrapped up in this this little stanza. I mean, think about it this way. Preached among the nations, we know, of course, that within not long at all, we went from Jerusalem, Judea, to the rest of the world in Acts. The world got turned upside down. Think about it this way, John stood in the doorway, he saw the burial cloth still intact and tried to figure out what it all meant and finally he went inside and where he saw and believed. There was, the, there was the belief ability, there was the accessibility of belief given to John that day from inside the tomb. And from inside the tomb on the evidence of the burial cloth, he believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, John was the only first to believe. Then Mary Magdalene believed and told the disciples, I have seen the risen Lord. As soon as the apostles began to preach the gospel to the nations, others then began to believe. As the first church in Jerusalem continued to preach the gospel, the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Acts 2. Missionaries today even report seeing more Muslims believe the gospel and repent of their sins than ever before in history. Another report, this one from the Far East, told the story of a man who received a Bible from a missionary hospital. The next time he needed medical help, he turned to the hospital, and it was 30 years later. And since that time, that previous visit, he had been reading his Bible, and he'd come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You see, all of that is contained in these incredible words preached among the nations Believed on in the world. It tells the Church of Jesus Christ how they're to expect what they're to expect in this life when they made this confession. That we live in the era of, of I can and I will. We live in the time where, where where Jesus says, I will answer your prayers. Ask anything according to my will. And we know his will. It is to see all people. He desires all people to, f- to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is the time, Christians. Where Jesus answers your prayer concerning the coming of believing, saving faith in the world. But we must ask for it. The ascension power of Christ from heaven and his great glorified power over all nations is made manifest through, in, with, and through the church as they proclaim the gospel, asking in Jesus' name. For your friend, for your brother, for your sister, for your mother, for your colleague to be saved. This is an important point. You see, this confession gave Christians who were felt very minoritarian, if you will, in a world of their day like we do in post-Christendom. They looked around us and they felt, wow, I don't see it, man. I don't see it materially. I don't see it politically. I don't see it in health, wealth, prosperity. I don't see it in my own prosperity outwardly. I don't see it in my own privileges outwardly. I don't see it in my, my power outwardly. And then comes this confession. There is another kind of power. It's not a power of the three Ps, power, privilege, prestige. It's a power of illumination, of being born again, where Christians Mostly Christians who are under persecution are transformed by this power that is proven then not to be of this world. It's not a power where somebody believes because it promises them health, wealth, and prosperity that is to be marveled at, as to vindicate Christ. It's the power of those who believe in the face of being humiliated and ostracized and marginalized. Where their faith might become a hindrance to their outward success. That's an amazing power. And that's what's being proclaimed here. In this period of yes. Well let me end this way. The truth that the church holds out to the world. This mystery unto godliness. Is something the church needs to really think deep about right now. Do we hold to this confession? I don't mean just say it, do we hold to it? God, being God, all our knowledge of Him comes by divine revelation. None of your work of your hands, not your power, privilege, or prestige in this world. And yet, aren't those sometimes the things that we are most busy about in our mission statements? God, being God, is not of this world. And therefore, all our knowledge of him comes by divine revelation. For it is impossible for us to know God without his willing to be known. God actively reveals himself through himself, through the incarnation of his son among us. As our Savior and the power of his Holy Spirit has been given unto you, the church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that, Christian? Really, do you believe that? Do I believe that? There's no God other than this self-revealed God. And there is no revelation of God apart from the fulfillment of his eternal purpose and his saving and reconciling acts in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ now proclaimed among the nations. That's the only power that is unto salvation. Do you believe that, my precious friends, brothers, sisters, co-laborers in Christ? These are words penned by T.F. Torrance. The words I just quoted. That is to say that if we believe it, what do we know then about God as our confession? I put the words up there. Well, you know a lot about God now. If you know Christ as revealed through the Gospels of Jesus Christ, you know the words of Jesus are the voice of God. The tears of Jesus are the pity of God. The wrath of Jesus is the judgment of God. All believers confess with adoring praise that in their most sacred hours, God and Christ merge together. They are morally indistinguishable in their identity. When in secret we look into God's face, still it is the face of Christ. That rises up before us, H.R. McIntosh. What do we know about God? Look upon Christ. What should it, how should it impact us to know God as revealed in Christ? It should both humble us and exalt us. Humble us, and that we can't, by our own works and mind, investigate God. Exalt us and that God has chosen out of his infinite mercy to reveal himself to you, if in fact you have saving faith. How do we know that we know God? Well, we would know it in that it would humble us, not self-exalt us. We would know it in that there's a sense in which while we know God, we know only that about God which he has chosen to reveal to us about himself, which we know is not the fullness of God. We know that there's many things about God that we don't know. And there are many ways of God that will still confound us. That's all right. For you see, we against the modern credo, if you don't know something fully, you don't know it at all. That's bunk when we talk about God. I know God in Jesus Christ, revealed by grace through faith by the supernatural gift of a new disposition that wants to know it. I don't know everything there is to know about God. Even Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. To know God is to humble us. To let God be God in circumstances that we can't understand. To let God be God when we come to the end of our confession and still find questions. Because we will, if, if it's done rightly. The mystery of God. How will it change us? It certainly would provide for us to know God, to really know God. We would have great energy for God. We would have great energy for God. God would not be a sideshow. It would not be something we do just, you know, at the end of our day, after our work, after our leisure. Oh, yeah, there's God. We would have great thoughts of God. We'd have great boldness for God. We would have great contentment in God. And finally, to know God through Christ will push us out of a dead orthodoxy. You know what dead orthodoxy is. One 19th century theologian, Thomas Peck and, and Stuart Robinson, who wrote this little editorial on the title, True Conservativism," said this. He contrasted true knowledge of God, true, if you will, faith in Christ, as distinguished from what he called old fogyism." You know what old fogeyism is, right? In Christianity, it's, that's when we worship the manners of, of Christianity. The practices, the traditions, the, you know, the, this is the way we do things. That's mannerism worship. But to know God is, is not this old daddyism is, is another word for fogeyism. Doing it what our fathers, the way our fathers did it. It's going to ever be going back to God. Who he is, knowing him, what is his nature, what has he revealed about himself, how then do we proclaim that among the nations? How then do we practice that in our worship? To rediscover the first principles of our religion and not the manners and the practices of our religion as the first principles. That's where all gets wrong. That's what's going to happen in this church if we go towards dead orthodoxy. This church becomes the church of how we at CPC do things. No, this is the church of Jesus Christ who knows God and is formed by that knowledge, it's changed by that knowledge, who's emboldened by that knowledge. Please, God, speak to your people. Amen.